0: A devotee of scrambled eggs.
1: I wanted to also ask about ghosts. Uh, Wait, that should be the title of this podcast. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. I wanted to also ask about
2: ghosts. (laughs) 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 We'll cut
1: this out or also we'll just use it. I am Max Leneve. And
2: I'm Sophie Wiener, and this is the University of Kentucky MFA podcast.
1: We spoke recently with visiting poet Tyamba Jess, author of Lead Belly, which was chosen by Bridget Peek & Kelly as winner of the National Poetry Series. His groundbreaking new collection, Oleo, was published this year, 2016, by Wave Books. Jess's work examines history through persona poems, as he explains here.
0: You know, these people from Blind Boone to Blind Tom and Sissy Retta Jones and and uh, Henry Box Brown and the Fish Jubilee Singers, et cetera, et cetera, they all are part of the way that we are American. Folio
2: contains poems in new forms like contrapuntals, syncopated sonnets.
0: Drawings, pages that fold out,
1: even pages that tear out and fold up to be read in a new way.
0: Yeah, the uh, Williams Walker has contradictions in it that read one way, and then when you read it the other way, it reverses.
1: One of the many interesting forms this book contains is a series of fictional interviews conducted by character Julius Trotter, who interviews various figures about the life of very real musician Scott Joplin. You know, Scott Joplin. I think it was in one of the the Trotter interview sections in, in Oleo. His trying to find out about Scott Joplin said that he's collecting or putting together his story to find out about ours. Yeah. Did you pick these these topics because they in some way sorta of shine a light on on our time?
0: Well definitely, you know, what I mean the project takes place with the backdrop of minstrelsy in researching minstrelsy and and the history of the people involved in minstrelsy i had to wade through all of the imagery and the insulting lyrics and all of that and you know we tend to forget how powerful that mode of entertainment was and how it shaped the psyche of the country uh, and all the way through the 19th and, and up up through the beginning of the 20th, and some would say even today, you know, in, in different kinds of forms. We still have arguments. We still see manifestations of blackface in various areas of our public life, shared online and, and even in movies, in different manifestations. So it's still relevant. And I think when he says... I'm researching his story so that we can find out, out about ours. That idea applies to all of these people in the manuscript because, you know, these people from Blind Boone to Blind Tom and Cissy Retta Jones and and uh, Henry Box Brown and the Fish Jubilee Singers, et cetera, et cetera, they all are part of the way that we are American. And mostly... Forgotten, or their memories have been neglected, and uh, for me, it was an it was an effort to do do a couple of things. One, to research what the roots of African American music were, what part of that root structure consisted of, and that you know, ragtime was really um, uh, essential. It's like an essential bridge between uh, classical music, spirituals, and jazz, you know, and all of those mixed together, forming this kind of bridge of, of, a, of a neglected time period. You know, when we think about literature written about that period, 1865 to World War One, there isn't as much written about that, Period. So I wanted to explore and figure out, you know, my, my idea of what the, the history of African-American music was, was mostly linked to a, a catalog of sound that I was able to listen to. In other words, records, recordings. Mm. But most of the people in this book were never recorded, you know. So they existed before the advent of the recording industry. So. We don't have recordings of them. We have compositions they wrote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they were, they were critical in taking that legacy directly out of the days of slavery, of chattel slavery, and across that period of time when there was no real recording industry up until the early 20th. And that is what I was really particularly interested in. Yeah.
1: So you maybe. Could think of the could think of a book like Olio in a way as sort of an effort at recording them.
0: Yeah, it's it's a stretch. it's a it's a it's it's a it's an effort at at uh, recalling them. It's a, it's an effort to call out their names. It's an effort to look back and try to understand what were the kind of decisions that they had to make in order to nurture their creative selves, right? And you you know I think. You know, the other thing is, it's, it's an effort to ponder upon the, the nature of a black creative, the first generation of black free population that had the ability to, at least in a broader sense, determine what they were going to sing, who they were going to sing it to, what instruments they were going to play, how they were going to play them where they would play them etc 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 and that's kind of an explosion of creative expression that dramatically shaped everything that we think about culturally right now so that was what i was really interested in the more i explored it the more i was intrigued by that notion yeah.
2: There has been, I think, a lot of discussion and controversy around John Berryman's The Dream Songs. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering how you came across them, maybe what your reaction was, and sort of how. I mean, they fit so well into this book, I think.
0: Yeah, John Berryman. Well, if any, any MFA student will attest to their having run up against or run across John Berryman in their studies... Uh, You know, uh, published the dream songs, uh, got the Pulitzer Prize for them in 1965. Incorporating the trope of minstrelsy throughout this text, this celebrated text. And what I wanted to do was to have a call and response with John Berryman in the person of uh, someone who was actually in the entertainment industry but not in, in the minstrel uh, in the minstrel vein so to speak but had many more difficulties in life than John Berryman had to deal with and incorporating his voice or, or the structure of his poems and actually trying to follow every like make every line repeat the sound of Berryman's lines in such a way that he was trying to incorporate the black minstrelized voice throughout his work. Primarily because I believe that he is such a central figure in late 20th century American poetics that it seems critical to me to call into question, to query, to challenge that kind of appropriation, but to do it not not through essay, but through actual work and actual historical recovery. So as a result, I found this person. Well, I didn't find him, but. <laughs> the idea of John Berryman had been lingering on my mind, frankly, for years and years, and I wanted to try and 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 find a way to address these issues. And also, Henry Box Brown had presented himself in my research as someone just ripe for inclusion in this volume. So, you know, you're wrestling with this idea, and you're also wrestling with that idea, and all of a sudden one day, you know, See, Berryman used the name Henry, you know, for himself and for this this character that he had supposedly developed. And then we have Henry Box Brown. And then all of a sudden, one day they, they connected. And I tried the first poem and tried to do it as best as I could. And then it kind of proceeded from there. But, you know, I also wanted to provide a... Text that would inform the studies of anybody henceforward who ran across the work of the dream songs, etc. I wanted to create a kind of counter text, a, a kind of reminder, a kind of rejoinder, a kind of talk back, right? to the kind of study that goes on, uh, about John Barry. It's really, really, that's the inside joke in the book. You know what I'm saying? That's the one piece of the book that is speaking specifically to the American poetry industry, so to speak, you know, and the American poetry hierarchy. So that, that was my, that was my cause. And also, also, the other thing was is that it was to illuminate this fascinating chapter in Henry Box Brown's life, who mailed himself from Virginia to Philadelphia. That was one mind-boggling episode in his life. But after that, to go to England and become a performer, and become and 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 to re. Create his escape time and time and time again, and to also tell the tale of, of American, uh, the American slave trade, and then after that to become a mesmerist, right? That and it also was mind boggling, and that's one thing I did not really realize. Fascinating character that I just like, I mean, he's just irresistible. Yeah. So he had to he had to be in the book some way. So.
2: I mean, I loved that part. But to be honest, I have Thank seen glad. a lot of instances of sort of callbacks to John Berryman in a lot of recent poetry, but mm-hmm. this is the first that I've seen that has challenged John Berryman's poetry in any way. So I was very happy to see that. I'm
0: Glad to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. I
1: think it was interesting that you say that. That section specifically speaks to. I think you said the, the poetry industry, um, maybe. And, in, in, you know, in our conversations about your books, we had kind of uh, talked about that a little bit that, uh, you know, the, a lot of it seems, uh, at least from our perspective, appeals to people studying poetry uh, with the forms. Uh, obviously, you sort of challenge the way books are read with tearing out pages, the pictures, um, which are amazing.
0: Do you think about audience? at all when you're writing? Yes, I do. Uh I I do think quite a bit about audience um probably because um what I'm trying to do is tell a story. And this is not this there is obviously there's there's uh some introspection that happens throughout the throughout the construction of any poem. You, you the author is always there to some degree. But I do have an objective, which is to tell people about these people, and so I my my idea is to make sure that they understand what is that that X did Y, A A did B, etc. This happened at that time. This happened at this time, etc. So I I they definitely are uh, in my head. Multiple audiences are in my head, though, because really, frankly, I'm I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm always. I'm always glad when, uh, a fellow poet or a some somebody, uh, in an MFA program, etc., wherever likes the book. But it's a special thrill to me when I am able to introduce this work to somebody who is not, you no, know, just not feeling poetry. You know, and and they really, they get into it. That is really, I I mean, so I have multiple audiences in mind. Yeah. It seems like a lot of books of, or poetry collections,
1: if you ask what what's it about, there's not really a, a solid answer like there might be with a novel. Mm-hmm. But I think with Lead Belly and Olio, there there is. I mean, you can say, it's about many things, but you can at least say on a
0: simple level. One is about stuff. Lead Belly. Right. The ones about about black artists and uh, creators from roughly war, uh civil War up until World War I yeah, yeah. I mean that's just i ha- I find history to be uh really uh fascinating, and uh that's that's kind of where my focus tends to go yeah. So.
1: How do you go about your research? Do you have a set way? Is it, or do you have the, uh, say, with Lead Belly? Did you decide on Lead Belly
0: and then sort of, go to the library and get a stack of books? With Lead, with Lead Belly, you know, um, I was reading his biography and I wrote one particular poem where he was in the Red River and he was being chased by, the dog and. He drowns the dog, etc. And that was really the first poem written in the book. And uh, and really, there was, I mean, you know, Lead Belly was about a, um, uh, um, an artist who's trying to wrestle with himself and, and get himself under control. That's, what, that's one of the central issues with Lead Belly. And that's really what I was trying to do at that particular time when I started writing. And so it became kind of a chronicle of his life and also through the writing of Lead Belly, it was, it was that same kind of path for myself. So I had that, that particular connection. Um, but after writing that, that poem, it was um, essentially, it was basically finding anything and everything ever written about Lead Belly anywhere. And tracking it down, trying to devour it and then uh, and then trying to figure out a way fi- to figure out which moments to write about and how to write about them.
2: One thing you have to know is that the poems in Olio play so much with form. He includes a lot of contrapuntal poems which are structured in a way where you have one voice on one side and then sort of a column of space and then another voice on the other side of the poem so that you can read each side of the poem individually and they're sort of separate voices but then you can also go back and read it a third way just straight across the line both voices included and so it gives you sort of a poem with three different readings.
0: Both because this project is done in the milieu of minstrelsy uh, you're talking about masks and hiding behind masks being uh, uh, in a situation where one has to put one face forward, but have another face in order to live one's life, you know And I think that that kind of double consciousness is part of what I'm trying to address with the contrapuntal poems, you know um, and Also, there's the uh, idea of the call and response where there's a quotation a historical quotation and then there's a response on the other side. So call and response, double consciousness, agency of the reader, all all of those things get involved in the the project.
2: How do you come to write sonnets that end up reading in every
0: direction? Well, I I had a few parameters. One was to honor the strict sense of the sonnet as much as I possibly could. In other words, what that meant was uh, dealing with the Shakespearean sonnet, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. Uh, and staying as close to that as possible. Also, trying to uh, remain within around 10 syllables per line for a number of reasons. One is because, you know, Shakespeare was very popular in the 19th century. And the sonnet form was adhered to in a very strict fashion as opposed to now. Now you can have a 14 line sonnet and it can just be 14 lines, right. you know, without any particular rhyme or it could be even 13 lines and it's I wanted to he- adhere to that form because I imagine these poems in conversation with the actual people and in a certain way I wanted to communicate with them in a form that they would be more recognizable to them so to speak and also I think as a result that I ended up playing more with rhyme in a way that is more related to uh, earlier American poetry you know the use of rhyme is not as important now clearly as it was a hundred years ago so
2: how um, do you come to sort of that idea and then how did you go about sort of creating it
0: you can actually See the development of the syncopated sonnet in, in the Blind Tom section, which is the first one in the book. In that, it started off being just side by side, because I was just, you know, I didn't know what was possible with them yet. And by the time they got fully integrated, as 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 per the very first syncopated sonnet and the last syncopated sonnet, which were constructed last, all, both of them were constructed last. I had come to the realization that when they were fully integrated with, a, uh, with, a, with a, a core kind of middle stanza, that they could be read up and down and diagonally, and that just broke open all kinds of different possibilities. At what point
1: did you know what all was going to be involved with the uh, formatting? You know, pages that tear out, pages that fold back on themselves, or was that, did that from, sort of reveal itself along the way? Yeah,
0: it, it revealed itself from the time that I finished the McCoy Twins, the star of the McCoy Twins yeah. first, and then the uh, Williams-Walker Paradoxal Hustle Huzzle, and then the uh, Double Shovel, and then, uh, of course, the, uh, the poem, involving Henry Box Brown, you know, as soon as I did the, the uh, McCoy Twins, that was the first really extensive, large uh, field that I filled. It was pretty obvious to me that it was going to have at least one fold out.
1: Yeah. So. I don't know how you could sort of present that the right way or do it justice without having a page that large. So. Yeah.
0: And the other like ones that. are that size are fold outs because you need that size to be able to cut them out and to make the Mobius strip correctly. You know, it needs that amount of space to really f- fold the paper correctly, Yeah. How'd you come up with that? I wasn't brave enough to try that. No <laughs> the way. fold looked like expert level. It's not that difficult. There's, a, there's instructions yeah. in the back. I came up with that because I was trying to find a way to, as with the McCoy twins, trying to find a way to use a form to make a concrete structure, right? I wanted to create another metaphor from the the structure of the poem that would allow the reader the same kind of flexibility, like the reader has agency in terms of which which way they want to go in the poem, whether they want to go interstitially, diagonally, down, up, etc. And I wanted to do that same thing, but I also wanted to express a kind of bending of form that would be reflective of the uh, kind of, Bending a form that's almost traditional in African-American creative experience, taking a received form and bending it in order to meet one's needs and further one's expectations, right, and extend beyond one's limitations.
1: That was poet Taim Bajess on the University of Kentucky MFA podcast. As a poet, I find myself interested in many things, a wide variety of subjects. So for me, it was fascinating to read his work in which he engages history and research so deeply and in a much more focused way than I've ever attempted.
2: Yeah, and I think it's worth putting out there that that is quite an undertaking and that his research certainly warrants the number of poems that this book contains. I also think it's important that we acknowledge that any bit of research you're doing, if you're on Wikipedia at 2 a.m., and I know you are.
1: We all are.
2: we, We all are. That can be in a poem.
1: You know, that's such an inspirational idea that any of those interests can sort of find a home in your writing. And it was just amazing reading Jess's work and seeing the way those interests of his and his research came through in poems that were so formal and at the same time so performative.
2: And speaking of performance, you know, we were very lucky to get to see Jess really perform his work. And, I mean, it really was a performance. It's an experience that you cannot reproduce from any reading of his book. Not like that. And he'll even, you know, show you the poem. He'll put it up on a projector and show you how he's reading it and taking creative liberties with it. And you really see the way the form is working. It's great stuff. So, you know, I've been challenging myself since hearing him speak to leave myself that kind of room or give myself a kind of flexibility in my use of form to see if I can maybe leave some open space for myself, if I can read something in multiple ways, if I can perform it differently than how it reads on the page.
1: This has been the University of Kentucky MFA podcast. I'm Max Laniv.
2: And I'm Sophie
1: Leonard. So long. I wanted to also ask about Ghosts is a product of UK's Visiting Writers Series. Find out more on the University of Kentucky MFA website. Our theme music is Mitchie Puked by the wonderful Parker Hobson. Many thanks to UK's Media Depot for tech resources and support.
0: Yeah.